I know so many people who have films that they have watched over and over, and I have never really gotten that. I always feel like there are so many films that I haven't seen, like, why would I watch one again? But we get into these conversations, and there always comes a moment where I'm asked, well, what is the film that you've seen the most? And then I have to admit, it's The Poseidon Adventure, which I know is not a good film. It's this 70s movie about an ocean liner that gets hit by a tsunami, flips upside down, and the passengers try to make their way to safety. It's part of an entire genre of films, disaster films, that have never gotten any respect. Like, nobody thinks of these films as art. But I loved it at the time when I saw it. It felt big, and it felt important and serious, and I remember it was very um, emotional. And uh, the reason that I saw it so many times, that this is the film that I saw more than any other, was not because I loved the film. It was because of where I saw it. It was on vacation. Uh, We didn't take many vacations when I was a kid, but on one of them, we stayed at this hotel in Florida where the rooms had this thing where they offered a couple movies all day long. And this was so long ago in the 1970s. Like, my sisters and I, we had never seen anything like that. Like, even cable TV was rare back then. The Poseidon Adventure was the film that they offered. And my sister Karen and I, we ate it up. That was the movie we watched over and over again. Yeah. Oh, so this was like a very important movie. That's Karen and her son Zach, my nephew, who we tried to explain this to recently. So we ended up watching it on TV, like at night, if our parents went out to dinner, or if it was a rainy day. So, yeah, we loved it. The way that I remember it is that, is that the hotel just had this movie on a loop. And it would just, as soon as it would finish, it would start again. And the way I remember it is that every time we would come into the hotel room, you could turn on the TV and you'd be somewhere in the Poseidon Adventure. That sounds vaguely familiar to me. I don't totally remember that, but that might be right. Yeah. And I remember it having a lot of feeling. Do you remember it having a lot of feeling? What does that mean, having a lot of feeling? Like, re- like I remember eliciting, feeling eliciting a lot of emotions. Yeah, well, it's scary and, you know, you're really invested in their journey to, you know, escape alive. I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying that. Sort of are. Here at the radio show these last few weeks, we've been talking about the random films that people have strong attachments to, thinking that might be a good episode of the show. And I started to think about the Poseidon Adventure. And I wondered what it would be like to see it again. Like, would it have any feeling? Would any of it feel the way it did to me as a kid? Would it feel that way to Karen? So uh, my sister and I, we watched it, and I invited Zach to since he's the age that we were when we watched it back in the 70s. He's uh, 13. I was 14 at the time. Karen was 11. And I want to say, I did not expect Zach to like it. Like, he does not like a lot of films. And right away, very first scene, let us know the kind of film we were in for. Um, A little boy uh, visits the bridge of the SS Poseidon, this ocean liner in the middle of a big storm. And uh, the little boy is greeted by the captain, who's played by Leslie Nielsen, who at this point, had not made the career transition to parodying characters like this captain. Master Shelby, you picked a particularly fascinating moment to accept my invitation. These waves don't bother you, huh? I've surfed up to 18 feet. But these look more like 30. 35, to be exact. Wow, surf's really up. Oh, my. What's oh, my? Those lines, so cheesy. I didn't remember how wincy the acting got in some places. When Ernest Borgnine shows up, it's clear that the 1956 Oscar winner for Best Actor is not in one of his best roles. Linda, you hear me? Why why is he so angry? Borgnine does seem to shout nearly every one of his lines in the film. 
One thing that kind of stunned me and I did not expect seeing the film again was how much of the dialogue I remember from decades ago. And I was also surprised to realize, and I do not know what this says about me, the lines that I remember the most are like the little comic zingers. You know, like when a crew member is asked if he's married, I know his corny response before he says it. No marriage for me, Mrs. Rosen. I've got a mistress. What? The sea. Something I did remember, and remember liking from the film, was that this was an old-fashioned enough movie that the producers tried to insert some big ideas into the adventure, so it would all mean something. These big ideas are provided by Gene Hackman, who plays a rebellious young priest in Turtleneck, whose big theological idea is a very conveniently helpful one for people who are about to be capsized in the middle of the ocean. God doesn't want you to wait for miracles. You have to take matters into your own hands. Don't pray to God to solve your problems. This is from a sermon he delivers early in the film. Have the guts to fight for yourself. God wants brave souls. He wants winners, not quitters. If you can't win, at least try to win. He comes back to this over and over through the film, rallying the passengers to fight on. I loved that as a teenager, that there was this idealistic guy with this principle that he's trying to live by and this idea about God that the film is testing. And I have to say, seeing it today, I still loved it. That to put that in there. Anyway, soon enough, right at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve, the tsunami hits, the boat flips, the plot line tips. In the wreckage of the upside-down New Year's party, Gene Hackman convinces only eight passengers that they shouldn't stay and wait for God to send rescuers, but climb with him to safety. Now please, for God's sake, come with me. They creep from deck to deck, barely escaping the rising water as they go. The ceilings of the rooms are the floors that they walk on and the floors of the ceilings. There's a fiery upside-down kitchen. They go up slippery ladders and inverted staircases. And by the time they start dying, one by one, for Karen and me, and even Zach, is no joke. We're in it. We care. Did she just have a heart attack? Wait, did she just have a heart attack? Yes. Wow. That's a pretty random heart attack. Not really. Think about the fact that she just did all that swimming and she's out of shape. After Mrs. Rosen, the Menchi grandma in the film dies, her husband discovers her dead body. Oh, that guy is going to be so sad. I remember this moment so well. I remember this too really well. This was very affecting. I've been really invested in this movie. It's sort of good. You do feel very invested? Yeah, it's like, I'm not sure what's going to happen next, unlike most other movies. I'd wondered if Zach was going to feel the same big feelings that I felt for the film at his age. And he totally did. Wow, she dies? No. Oh, he dies too? No. They were so close. No. By the time we get to Gene Hackman's big climactic speech to God. What more do you want of us? We come all this way, no thanks to you. It was clear. The Poseidon adventure, it does its job. It gets to you. But thinking about the experience that Zach had watching the film and the one that I was having, it's so different, right? For me, it was like walking into a room from my childhood home and finding it intact and exactly how I remembered it. 
Or we would get to a scene and I would remember things I didn't realize I remembered. Is there even a name for that? When we watch a movie together, you know, we think we're watching the same thing, but we are not. For me, the Poseidon Adventure is a portal back to that vacation and being in that hotel room with Karen and knowing those movie stars from other things they made and just that whole time in my life. I can't show Zach that movie. Well, from WBZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, after months of pandemic when so many of us have been staying home and seeing way more movies than usual, we thought here at our show, let's do a movie night, a show about movies. And in particular, we decided to get people who've watched a film over and over, who see something in it most people don't see, films for which they are an audience of one, including somebody who went this deep with a video online and somebody who watched a classic kids film over and over, a film that so many of us have seen. She loved it and only learned years later as an adult that what she'd seen was only the first half of the film. Stay with us. Back one, putting the ease in disease. So back when the pandemic first took hold, a lot of people were watching or re-watching the movie Contagion, which originally came out in 2011. Maybe you've seen it. It's about a deadly and fast-spreading virus that is spread by respiratory droplets. goes around the world. Governments fail to contain it. And I think we watch films like that or, you know, read books about the 1918 flu because it just scratches this itch where we just want some way to think about what we're going through right now. And it's nice to just see somebody else go through some version of it. One of our producers, uh, Sean Cole, has never seen Contagion, but he found himself turning to this other movie, a movie about a virus that you probably have not heard of. It is a very different spin on the subject. Here's Sean. You won't find this movie on Netflix or YouTube or anywhere like that. Or at least I couldn't find it that way. I finally had to order a DVD from an online vintage movie store. It's clear my copy was pirated off cable. Skips a lot. And like all of the Contagion geeks, I was floored by some of the parallels to now, especially given that this movie came out in 1968, more than half a century ago. For instance, in this movie, instead of a bat, the vector of the virus is a bird, a toucan that stowed away aboard a Greek freighter somewhere near Central America. Then the boat docks in New York Harbor for inspection, and the first mate alerts the military that a lot of the crew is sick. We'll have to hold the ship in quarantine indefinitely. If it is a virus, my guess it's a brand new one, some kind of a mutation. No telling how long it'll take to identify it. The toucan is still on board, held in a makeshift chicken wire fence. But then it gets loose, flies straight into the city, and starts infecting people. Just a few at first. The mayor of New York, an empty suit motivated mostly by money and poll numbers, holds a press conference, speaking into a microphone labeled WNYC, a public radio station in New York where I used to work. It's weird. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Only 47 cases have been reported so far. Uh, the, uh, however, the commissioner of health recommends that you wear a surgical mask when you are out in public. Now... He holds up a mask exactly like the one I wear every day. After the reporters leave, though, there's deep concern and dread. The health commissioner, an older Anthony Fauci type, scolds the mayor for underplaying the threat everyone's facing. True, we got a line on the 47 and reported to doctors, but... But when you feel good, you don't go to a doctor. Lord knows how many more have it. But a virus only has a life of 10 days or so. You said so yourself. Yes, but somebody who gets it on the 10th day and has it for another 10 days, and a week after he gets it, he gives it to somebody else. 
and so on, theoretically, could go on for years. Soon, everyone is scurrying around the city in a masked panic. Businesses suffer. A presidential envoy fast-tracks the development of a vaccine. If it weren't for the 20-foot-long cop cars and A-line mod dresses, it feels like some of these scenes could have been shot in Manhattan last weekend. Except there's one major difference between this film and the Steven Soderberghian contagion-like reality we're all living in. Because in this movie, the virus is not fatal. It doesn't even cause a fever or a cough. Instead, the main and only symptom is absolute euphoria. That's it. Everyone it infects experiences unbridled happiness and elation. Its victims begin acting kindly to one another, deferential. In just a couple days, the city is transformed from this... Come on, you jerk! The light ain't gonna get any greener! Well, you lazy, no-good, rotten, stinking... You telling me when I came in? You're damn right I am! Who you shoving, Matt? You on the sidewalk? ...to this. Good morning. Nice day, isn't it? I'm sorry. Pardon me. May I help you? The movie's called What's So Bad About Feeling Good. It's a comedy. A rom-com, really. And it is not a good movie, which is why you likely haven't heard of it. Even though the lead actors are George Pappard from Breakfast at Tiffany's and The A-Team and Mary Tyler Moore from... Mary Tyler Moore. And they do a good job... Pretty much everyone in the cast is really skilled. But the whole production is outlandishly campy and caricaturistic. There are a few very awkward choices. Cartoon word balloons emerge from the toucan's mouth sometimes when it squawks. So you know what it's thinking. Oh, and there's a schmaltzy AM radio theme song. Kind of a knockoff of Burt Backrack. What's so wrong with that happy sensation? That sense of utter elation? What's so bad about feeling good? That said, it's also a great movie, in the way that silly B-movies can be so satisfying, especially the arcane ones that make you feel like a kid watching adults mess up for the first time. I have a greatest hits list of them in my head, Wild in the Streets, about ageist hippies waging a coup against the U.S. government. Uh, Invasion of the Bee Girls, about a race of murderous women, who are also bees. Both of which you can watch online for free. But since it's so hard to find a copy of this movie, let me just continue taking you through the plot in a kind of abbreviated, radioified Cliff's Notes version. For your movie-not-going enjoyment. So, George Papard and Mary Tyler Moore are Pete and Liz two characters who are tailor-made for this particular plot because they don't contain an ounce of euphoria. They're brooding existentialist arty types that have dropped out of society, living in the East Village. They'd be boyfriend and girlfriend if they believed in that sort of thing. For no discernible reason, or maybe because the script wasn't working and they had to fix it quickly, there's a lot of voiceover by these two. A couple of years ago, I just like the rest of you conformists, I was in advertising. Name on the door, carpet on the floor, an ulcer, headaches, the whole bit. I wised up that phony world and came down here. So did Liz. She was on the treadmill, too. I sure was. Uptown supper clubs singing schmaltzy songs to the drunks, fighting to get to the top of the ladder. And then my heart got into the act and somebody stepped on it. Pills to sleep, pills to stay awake. Finally, I asked myself, for what? This was the answer. This being the communal building they live in with a tribe of other unhappy nihilists collecting unemployment. They all look a little like cave people at a gallery opening. One of them spends every hour of every day completely enveloped inside of a sack. 
They call her the sack. Since the problems of life are insoluble, one should draw into complete isolation and live a life of total non-involvement with other people. The sack is right. Meanwhile, a little ways downtown, the Faucian commissioner of health pretty quickly figures out how the virus works. And it has to be transmitted by respiration. All that bird has to do is get within breathing distance of somebody and pop goes the weasel. Cue the toucan, who flies into Pete and Liz's window one morning while they're sleeping, loiters for a minute next to Pete's face, and leaves. Pete wakes up, early, and heads up to the roof. Liz climbs up after him, concerned. Pete! Come here! What happened? Come here! Look, in this cruddy pile of junk, a flower. Pete, what's wrong? What's the matter with you? I don't know, no. Ever since I got up, I've been feeling strange, kind of. I don't think I can explain it to you, but everything seems different. Hey, listen. To what? The traffic? Kids laughing. You know why they're laughing? Because they're not old enough to read the newspaper. You take a look at the front page and then try laughing. The world's a stinking, hopeless mess. Oh. Pete, you're sick. You know, sometimes a high fever can make you feel this way. I feel great. That's what I mean. At this point, it's worth noting why someone might want to make a film about the need for euphoria in 1968. The front page Liz is talking about would include headlines like Martin Luther King is slain in Memphis, Robert Kennedy dead, police battle demonstrators in the streets, also Viet Cong storm U.S. Embassy, We were a nation at war both abroad and with itself, with protests and riots in cities across the country, and a presidential candidate running on a platform of law and order, and also courting segregationists. And given all that, you might ask, what is so bad about feeling good? Which is what the mayor in the movie wanted to know. In one of the first crisis management meetings with his cabinet, they're running down the symptoms for him and tell him the virus stops people from brooding. But it's worse than that. Mr. Mayor, 82% not only stop brooding, they stop smoking. 93% stop drinking. What's wrong with that? In terms of dollars and cents, it's disastrous. Our city is facing a drastic loss in income from sales tax. That's ridiculous. 47 people dropping a bucket. But if this goes unchecked for a month, by mathematical progression, half of New York will have the virus. You know what that means? It means a loss in cigarette and liquor taxes. More than $180 million. $180 million? Brady, what are you sitting there for? Get that bird! Yes, sir! Brady is the chief of police. Capture the bird, they can extract its tissues, come up with a cure, and stave off an economic crisis. Because, of course, what's the most important thing a politician thinks of in a potential pandemic? How to save the economy. Meantime, Pete, much to Liz's horror, has shaved off his beard, cut his hair, and is talking about trying to get his old advertising job back. Which, quick digression, interests me because it's the opposite of subversive. Once these nonconformists get infected, instead of dropping out, they drop in. Pete feels so good, in fact, that once he figures out what's quote-unquote wrong with him, he wants to share it with everyone, starting with Liz. 
in an age when all of us are actively avoiding each other's bodies, like the plague, because of you know, the plague, it's wild to watch someone actively trying to spread a virus like this. One little kiss and you'll have it too. I don't want it. Just one little kiss, you like yourself in the morning. I don't want it, please. Well, we'll get married. A real marriage. A church wedding. Chasing her around the room. Get a little place in Jersey. Can't have some kids and I'm over the lawn. And give up all this? Eventually, in a completely unbelievable moment that would never have survived the Me Too movement, Pete disguises himself as a nihilist German philosopher and tries to pressure Liz into bed, finally settling for a kiss. He exposes the rest of the gang, too. They all shave, cut their hair, queer-eye their apartments. The sack climbs out of her sack. And the toucan, remarkably, keeps coming back, becomes their pet. They call him Amigo. At the same time, the mayor is bundled off to an emergency bunker so that he doesn't get sick. A TV reporter buttonholes him on the way in. Tell me, sir, is there any truth to the rumor that there's been a spread in the epidemic? Epidemic? Oh, well, I'd, I'd hardly call it an epidemic. After all, we only have 180 million, uh, uh, 47 cases. Well, why then, sir, are you visiting the fallout shelter? Just a routine inspection last Friday of every month. But today is Saturday, sir. Well, better late than never. It took me watching this scene a few times, trying to figure out why it sounded so familiar. And then I was like, oh, yeah. At the height of the protest outside the White House, President Trump was moved for a time to the bunker, something that hasn't happened since 9-11. I was there for a tiny, little short period of time, and it was much more for an inspection. There was no Anyway, there aren't only 47 cases for long. And that is largely due to the efforts of Pete and Liz and their friends. They wage a campaign to spread the virus intentionally by subterfuge. Liz and the SAC volunteer to hand out masks to their fellow citizens, breathing on them first. While the SAC made sure that every mask was specially treated with the virus, I made sure that nobody got away without one. I was in charge of transportation assisted by Conrad. Our specialty was a subway at rush hour. Where the biggest crowds were breathing in, we were there, breathing out. They breathe on peanuts and feed them to the pigeons. Liz and another friend get jobs as burlesque dancers. Their shtick is blowing soap bubbles into people's faces. And in just a couple of days, the number of cases explodes to about two million, about a quarter of the city's population. Cabbies stop in the middle of the street to let pedestrians cross in front of them. Marriage license applications flood City Hall. Pete and Liz is among them. Barbershop lines are staggering. People literally dance in the streets with joy. It's a disaster. Finally, the president's envoy is helicoptered into New York City to save the day, and frankly, to save the movie. It's Dom DeLuise, from Blazing Saddles, Spaceballs, Robin Hood Men in Tights. I have a statement from the president. Dom DeLuise. I love Dom DeLuise. He looms so large in my childhood comedy pantheon. He's atomically funny, even in this very not good film. His character, Jay Gardner Monroe, is way more confident and bossy and conceited than he is capable. He snaps his fingers at his aides, uses the word repeat before repeating himself, like a military general. Anyway, he heads straight to the bunker and tells the mayor and everyone that if the toucan isn't caught before the tally reaches three million cases, he's putting plan CC27 into effect. The bridges, tunnels, airports will be closed. Repeat, closed. Not one single person will get in or out of New York. But Mr. Monroe, do you realize we have 52 conventions coming in next week? Conventions? Do you realize what would happen if this got to Washington? 
Republicans agreeing with Democrats and vice versa. This bird could destroy our two-party system, the very foundation of our great democracy. The tally board is at 2.2 million cases at this point. And this is really the final and maybe most alarming parallel between our story and real life. As Monroe watches the numbers tick upward, he shakes his head in disgust. Those commies sure are sneaky. Oh, come on. You don't think for one moment that this thing is just an accident, do you? (laughs) Do you? When that bird landed on that ship, its position was... uh, Longitude 82, latitude 24. 24. Not very far from Cuba, eh? Take my word for it. That bird is a hook-nosed missile. Sent here by you-know-who. You-know-who, Fidel Castro. Look at the facts. When people get the bug, they suddenly love the world. Now, if you-know-who was getting ready to act up again, what would be better than to give Americans a sense of security? A false sense of security and euphoria. Mr. Monroe, you're not suggesting this virus was artificially produced in a laboratory? Yes, virus produced... Laboratory, yes. Medical impossibility, just couldn't have happened. (laughs) That's what they said about the power failure here in New York in 65. And what about the Asian flu? That came straight, believe you me, from Red China. Of course it's satire, and in that way it's cathartic. But when I got to that scene, it suddenly felt like every other part of the movie had been an escape from what's going on. It's funny that one of the most ludicrous pieces of dialogue is also practically a quote we've heard in the news in 2020, and not as a joke. There's so much more of the story left, but just to abridge. So they finally manage to isolate the virus. Amazingly, because it's a movie, they develop a vaccine like that day. But they still have to test it out. So they spray it in Pete and Liz's nuptial bed, in the hotel room where they're spending their wedding night, and set up a hidden camera behind the air vent. Everybody in the bunker, the mayor, the Fauci character, Jay Gardner Monroe, all of them sit and monitor the couple on a big screen as morning arrives. Liz wakes up to Pete coming back from an errand. He's still wearing his suit, but he's disheveled. Messy hair. Smoking. Good morning, darling. I didn't hear you. Couldn't sleep. Went out for coffee and cigarettes. Room service is probably open. I'll order breakfast. I don't want any. Oh, but Pete, you really should eat something. Don't bug me. Jay Gardner Monroe, watching on the monitor from the bunker, is psyched. Well, he's back to normal. It worked, Doc. Not her. She doesn't seem to have changed a bit. And I don't know what this says about me, but of all the scenes in the movie, this is the one I remember the most clearly from the first time I saw it. I've actually kind of carried it around all of these years because it's genuinely so sad. Liz looks like her heart is breaking in real time. No, don't ask me to go back. Remember what we had. Remember it. Cling to it. You're kidding yourself. You talk about goodness and kindness. Read the front page and try and find some. Peter, I can't go back. I couldn't live that kind of life ever again. Pete shrugs. Okay. You 
drink your poison and I'll drink mine. There's no doubt about him. That was certainly a positive reaction. Positive. There's a happy ending. Liz decides to leave New York and move home. But at the very last minute, she goes to say goodbye to Amigo, the bird, who's in a zoo now. And Pete's there too. They do that rom-com running thing. And just like that, they're back together. The city spews the vaccine into the air via factory chimneys and exhaust pipes, and most of New York lives miserably ever after. But some people stay pleasant and uplifted. Because, major plot twist, 50% of the people who seem to be infected actually never got the virus in the first place. The joy just rubbed off on them. And Liz was one of those people which is why she didn't get quote-unquote better in the hotel room, which is actually the moral of the movie, that happiness is a choice. But watching the movie during this pandemic, I drew another darker conclusion. Somehow, that wiggly, weird jolt of recognition I got over and over again, what it felt like was, this is how it goes. When faced with a crisis like this, governments will minimize the severity of the danger, they'll value the wrong things, they'll focus on the economy over people's lives, and blame foreigners in an ugly, xenophobic way. I'm sure there's a version of America where all that might not happen, but we're not living in that America right now. And Pete and Liz weren't living in it either. If it's possible for human beings to do the wrong thing, we'll figure out a way. We're resourceful like that. John Cole is one of the producers of our show. Man, I had the craziest dream. I danced with Mr. Clean and gave the white knight a helping hand. Coming up, okay, it's five o'clock somewhere, but in Wisconsin, they're asking when it's five o'clock here, does that really mean five o'clock? That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, audience of one, stories about people watching movies and watching some other things too and seeing something in them that other people do not. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Late Registration. So uh, verite political documentaries are not everybody's thing, especially if they are over five hours long and go straight to video. But one of our producers, Ben Calhoun, discovered one that he found pretty mesmerizing. It concerns Kanye West. As uh, you probably know, Kanye West is running for president. He's not on the ballot in enough states to actually win the presidency. But he's in some key battleground states, including Wisconsin. Of course, the celebrity on the ballot will always siphon off at least some votes. And in Wisconsin, both parties are scrounging for any little pocket of votes that they can get. Because, as you may recall, in 2016... Donald Trump won Wisconsin by just 23,000 votes out of 2.8 million cast. So any tiny wedge of votes could possibly make the difference and determine who wins the state this time. Which brings us to the video Ben saw. Here he is. This five-and-a-half-hour video is of the Wisconsin Elections Commission deciding whether Kanye West would get to appear on the state's ballot in November. Wisconsin, my home state, it's like a lot of places— if you're Kanye West or anyone who's not from a major party, you got to collect a certain number of signatures to get on the ballot. 
In Kanye West's case, a company flew in canvassers who started circulating petitions just one day before the signatures would have to be turned in to state elections officials at 5 p.m. So they collect and collect. Next day comes, Tuesday, August 4th, and we arrive at the deadline, 5 p.m. A tiny moment, cradled between 4.59 and 5.01, a speck on the surface of American history but one that would spiral out into a marathon political debate. My name is Ann Jacobs. I'm chair of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. We are here for a special meeting. Here we are a couple weeks later. It's Thursday afternoon. The Wisconsin Elections Commission gets together to decide about kicking Kanye West off the Wisconsin ballot. The setting, it's one that's familiar to a lot of people now. Zoom. Commissioner Spindell. Here. Commissioner Thompson. Here. The camera toggles between the six commissioners. There's three Republicans, three Democrats. Occasionally, it flips to some of the staff. Running the show, Ann Jacobs, the commission chair, a Democrat. Jacobs gets right down to business, challenge to West petitions. There will be a lawyer on each side. So first up, representing the challengers, the folks trying to bump West off the ballot, there's a lawyer named Jeff Mandel. He looks a little like a young John Favreau, the actor, not the podcaster. Mandel appears in what looks like a cozy spot in his house. Thank you very much. Um, may it please the commission. The nomination papers submitted on behalf of Mr. West and Ms. Tidball were untimely. They were filed after 5 p.m. Statute 8.20, subdivision 8, section AM, says that nomination papers must be filed not later than 5 p.m. That is a very legal way to say West was late. An attorney for his campaign, a woman named Lane Rulin, she rolled up to the building in an SUV moments before five. She shuffled papers around on her dashboard and then rushed in as a TV news crew filmed her. And Mandel lays all this out with the punch and swagger of a prosecutor on a capital murder case, when really he's just talking about a lawyer walking through a door. By her own admission, attorney Ruland was in her car at 4.59 p.m. That's in paragraph 6 of her affidavit on page 928 of the commission materials. Ms. Ruland exited her car a couple of seconds after 5 o'clock. You can see that in Exhibit A to the Remaker affidavit at 3 minutes and 4 seconds in the video. What follows is a Zapruder film-style reconstruction of this whole scene at the front door of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, the moment when West lawyer rushed in with the petitions. Mandel has stitched all this together from affidavits, a TV news story, and a video from a Democratic Party operative who filmed all this, including a shot of his Apple Watch for a timestamp. Ms. Ruland entered the building no earlier than 14 seconds after 5 o'clock. Her colleague followed eight or nine seconds later with the bulk of the papers. That left them no more than 36 seconds to walk the length of the first floor, to wait for the elevator, to ride to the third floor, to wait for the doors to open, to walk to the main desk of the commission, and to transfer the papers to the filing officer. That cannot happen in 37 seconds. The staff memo reaches that conclusion on page 15. The papers were in the elevator and not in the filing clerk's possession at 501. Maybe you've seen stories about how Republican fingerprints are all over Kanye West's nebulous presidential campaign. There was no attempt to hide them in Wisconsin. The company that hired the canvassers, who got West's signatures, 
it's reportedly run by a Republican operative. It did the same thing for him in Ohio, West Virginia, Arkansas. Lane Rulin, the lawyer who dropped off his petitions in Wisconsin, she used to work for former Republican Governor Scott Walker and the Republican Party of Wisconsin. She recently represented the Trump campaign in a lawsuit. When the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel dug into who was listed on West paperwork, it found one Republican activist and operative after another. Black officials in Milwaukee have accused Republicans of helping West's candidacy as a cynical and insulting attempt to divert black voters away from Joe Biden to aid Donald Trump. Wisconsin Republicans haven't admitted that. They've also conspicuously not denied it. Asked about the Republican attorney who submitted West paperwork, a GOP spokeswoman told the newspaper, quote, it appears that Kanye West made a smart decision by hiring an experienced election attorney. Back to the meeting. The attorney trying to knock West off the ballot goes through several other problems with West's petitions. And then it's time for the 10-minute response from the West campaign. You may begin your time to argue. All right, thank you. Um, good afternoon, Madam Chair, Elections Commission, staff, and opposing counsel. Representing the West campaign is not the lawyer who filed the petitions, but a lawyer named Michael Curran. He looks unnervingly like billionaire Mark Cuban, and he appears, unfortunately, backlit. His face shaded and kind of hard to see. When he gets started, attorney Curran makes what I suppose is the argument that he has to make, that walking in 14 seconds past the 5 o'clock deadline, that's not actually late. When we're talking about time periods, no later than includes the time frame and the reference that were used. For example, no later than Tuesday does not mean prior to Tuesday. No later than Tuesday means all of Tuesday. And to make 5 p.m. quote-unquote late, the proper language would be before 5 p.m. or prior to 5 p.m. or not later than 4.59 p.m. But no later than 5 p.m. does include the, the full minute. Um, the question the West lawyer is posing, is 5 o'clock a point in time or is 5 o'clock all the space between 4.59 and 5.01? It's not actually such a bad question. Like, April 15th is a tax deadline. You get all day on the 15th file, right? The next plot twist happens when the first Republican takes his turn asking questions of the two lawyers. That's a Republican named Dean Knudsen. He's a former state lawmaker. He's a veterinarian. Knudsen's sitting in front of this folksy painting that makes it feel like he might be in the waiting room of his veterinary practice. And he's noticeably skeptical of the West campaign's attorney. Five o'clock is five o'clock. So I I understand you're trying to make an argument that five o'clock is 501. But it just seems to me that, you know, everything that starts with the four is is before five o'clock and five o'clock's the deadline. Maybe I'm just common sense and not a lawyer, but that's the way it seems. Attorney Kern, if you set a timer on your phone to go off at five o'clock, when would it go off? It should go off at five o'clock sharp, as soon as the clock turned to five. Five, zero, 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 so on. Yes. So if we had set a timer to go off at five, 
would the papers have been in on time or not? Well, uh, the first response would be that's for the filing officer to determine, but to, to answer your question directly. I but if Knutson doesn't seem to be towing the party line, the next Republican commissioner to ask questions, he seems more than ready to do the opposite. It's your floor. Okay, thank you. On camera, Commissioner Robert Spindell. He looks like he's being held captive in a supply room somewhere. He's against this white wall that has nothing on it. Pretty quickly, he goes really big on the West campaign's argument that 5 o'clock means you have right up until 5.01. You know, on your point about is uh, is 5 o'clock, 5 o'clock, uh, I did a lot of uh, time trying to find something, and there's no real definitive action. Over the next few minutes, uh, Spindell makes a number you know, of creative arguments uh, trying to help the Kanye ago, West lawyer. Like he says, since the petitions entered the building at 5 o'clock and 14 seconds, well, 14 seconds is less than half a minute, so that really rounds back down to 5 p.m. sharp, right? Yeah, I mean, that's just simply math in, in a round, uh, rounding-type errors. So, Spindell uh, also questions whether the West campaign team is, actually had to turn in the petitions in order for the petitions to be turned in. And as I understand, she and her assistant got on the elevator uh, with a staff person, just the three of them. Uh, would you not consider that that could be uh, transfer of, um, of documents? at that time, that once the door closed to the elevator. To be clear, Spindell is contending that being in the elevator with a staff member and not handing the staff member the documents is the same as being in the office and physically turning them in. Can I say, there's something about how the action of all this plays out on Zoom. With all the normal Zoomy interruptions, it feels intimate. One commissioner keeps dropping off the call At one point, there's a cat butt that pops into a frame next to a commissioner asking questions. And also, when people go at each other, it feels more personal somehow. Because you just see them, and they're in their homes. Like Ann Jacobs, the chair. A few times, she gets into it with Spindell. And you see her in what I think is her living room. She's wearing pearls, and she's sitting in front of a fireplace and what looks like a silver tea set. So it's way less like a debate in some random government building or whatever, and more like family members getting in a fight on the phone or something. I'd like to make a friendly amendment. Can I do that? You can. You don't have to take it, obviously, but uh, I'd like to make a friendly motion that we substitute the motion that we, put, that we already passed. I Bob! Yeah. I thought you said I could. I'm sorry. No! Okay. Just wait. But, so... I still haven't gotten to the most memorable parts of Spindell's speechifying. Okay. Thank you. Uh, they started when he talked about COVID. Uh, would you su- uh, agree that the pandemic has made life and everything else much harder? Yes. In a situation like this where the pandemic makes things harder and where everything else is, there's great efforts to, in the election process uh, to try and make the procedure easier for all the voters uh, then uh, would you agree that we, we shouldn't try and make it a little bit easier? Spindell is essentially making an argument that democracy uh, takes more time during a pandemic. Um, and so people should get more time to do things. Which, let's just in, in pause Spindell for a second here. Because the Wisconsin GOP has systematically staked out positions to do the opposite. This year, Wisconsin conservatives have fought the idea of giving more time for early voting and absentee voting. 
In April, Republicans also made it very clear that they oppose postponing an election due to COVID, including Robert Spindell, who said COVID was no reason to postpone an election. Still, Spindell had one more argument. Wisconsin Democrats, which is, which is the people that are bringing this uh, challenge, um, my, my question is, when are they going to stop suppressing the black vote? Uh, here, they wish to take away from uh, the black population an opportunity to um, take a black presidential candidate off the ballot and have a choice in terms of who they want to vote for. You know, what's next in terms of trying to, to uh, suppress the, the black choice? This is where the meeting truly bent my mind, as if it would make sense for Democrats to suppress black voters. Nationally, 87% of them identify as Democrats. I couldn't help but think, watching this, that here we are in the throes of the seismic election cycle, one in which lots of people on both sides argue that the people on the other side they're out to destroy the country. It feels huge. It's weird to think that the legitimacy of the election process over the coming weeks will hinge on what happens in so many rooms like this, on tiny screens like this. With public servants and volunteers and campaign workers, they'll be wrestling over rules and deadlines and signatures and postmarks. This video, it's actually kind of a sneak preview. And honestly, I think we'll be lucky if it looks like this meeting. Absurd as it got at times, I respect this so much. These commissioners are paid a little over $100 a meeting. They have to read hundreds of pages of documents to prepare for this. And they went around and around and around, splitting this 14-second hair every which way. For the vast majority of the time, people were thoughtful. And they were willing to step across party lines if that's what they had to do to get to what they thought was fair. Mostly, they seemed like they were trying to do what was right. And in the end, a very simple argument went out. There was precedent. Lots of it. Many people had missed deadlines in the past, and whether by a lot or a little, they just couldn't accept it. I vote aye. The motion is carried five to one. And just like that, Kanye West was off the Wisconsin ballot. The remainder of this video is worth mentioning. If you'll just give me one more minute here, I'll sum it up for you. While Kanye West's campaign made the headlines the next day, the Wisconsin Elections Commission also made another decision that night, one with the power to affect the outcome of the presidential race. Also on the agenda that evening was a challenge seeking to bump the Green Party candidates off the ballot on something that's really pretty technical. See, during Wisconsin's signature collection period, the VP candidate for the Green Party seems to have moved. So her address at the beginning, it doesn't match her paperwork at the end. Republicans were like, that's nitpicky BS. But the Democrats wouldn't budge. And the end result? The Green Party was gone. Just like West, removed from the ballot. And you don't have to look far to see the enormous stakes of that decision. You remember how in 2016, Donald Trump won Wisconsin by 23,000 votes. That year, the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein. She got 31,000 votes in Wisconsin. Ben Calhoun is one of the producers of our show. After this meeting, the Kanye West campaign and the Green Party candidates both sued the Wisconsin Elections Commission 
trying to get on the ballot. The Green Party went to the state Supreme Court and lost, so no Green Party. In the Kanye West campaign's lawsuit, a judge also ruled no. Judge John Sikowski gave the final word on the debate over the meaning of time in his written decision, quote, The court believes that the time a grandfather clock rings out five times is the moment it is 5 p.m. The court used the analogy of midnight. There is significant difference between 11.59.59 p.m. and one second after midnight. The passage of a second after midnight confers an entirely new day. In other words, quote, the court finds that basically five o'clock is five o'clock. Fact three, many a thing she ought to understand. One of our producers, Diane Wu, spent most of her life thinking that she did not have a unique and personal take on the film The Sound of Music. The Sound of Music, after all, everybody loves it. What's there to say? And then she learned, no, her take is very different. I watched The Sound of Music all the time as a kid. It was one of maybe six VHS tapes we had at home, along with Bambi and 101 Dalmatians. And a few years ago, I was talking with a friend about how much I loved the movie growing up. And he said, me too, though the Nazis scared me. And I said, what Nazis? And that's when I learned I'd never seen the second half of the film. It turns out the movie came out in a two VHS box set. And I, for some reason, had only ever seen the first tape. My dad doesn't remember a second tape either. And why would you need one? The first half makes perfect sense on its own. Here's the plot. It's a movie about a woman named Maria who is sent to the countryside to babysit a giant family of children with a mean dad, the Von Trapps. Maria shows up, bubbly, fun, and teaches them to sing and play and be kids, all against the wishes of their father. But the singing wins him over, they sing together as a family, and finally at a party, the kids sing a beautiful song for the guests, Farewell. And after that, Maria, having successfully fixed the family, leaves just like Mary Poppins did when she fixed that family. And that's the end of the movie. I had very clear, fond memories of the goat herd puppet show and the scene in the gazebo where Liesel, the oldest daughter, secretly met with the mailman she was in love with, and they sang and danced, and it was so romantic. I had no further questions about any of the characters. So when I learned that there were 70 more minutes to the film, I didn't bother going to look for them. The Sound of Music was a full, complete, and wonderful artifact from my childhood. I didn't want to taint it with Nazis. But when my coworker Lena, who's producing this week's show, and is a musical theater fan, which I most definitely am not, when she found out I still hadn't seen the whole thing, it seemed heretical to her. She couldn't let it stand. So we watched it together over the internet one Sunday afternoon. And I prepared to have a childhood memory either slightly enhanced or completely ruined. Before we started, she had me predict what was going to be in the second half. I want, based on, and this is based on my childhood memory and just like what I would like to see, mm-hmm. is it's the second half is just focused on my favorite two characters, Liesel and the hot mailman. I want to see their courtship and, <laughs> and then they get married and that's the end of that, the movie. We hit play and started at the very beginning started with a part I know. And the first half was more or less the simple, sunny movie I remembered. Seeing the kindly and dour nuns come on screen early on was like recognizing teachers I had in elementary school. Reverend Mother. Sister Bernice. I simply cannot find her. Maria, 
There is that gazebo scene when the mailman and Liesl sing to each other. I am 16, going on 17, I know that I'm naive. Then whirl around the gazebo, dancing. Oh my god, this still looks like so much fun. Watching now, though, I saw a lot of things that I had completely missed as a kid. Because, as a child, I'd apparently ignored anything that adults who were not Maria said to each other. Literally none of that dialogue registered. It was like the mumbly grown-ups in Charlie Brown. My kid self had edited full characters out of the film. I barely remembered the Baroness who wants to marry the dad. This really is exciting for me, Georg, being here with you. <laughs> Trees, lakes, mountains. When you've seen one, you've seen them all. That is not what I mean, and you know it. So, any of their plot lines that were not resolved in the first half, moot. I also missed, of course, how Maria and the dad supposedly fall in love. The dad, by the way, was even meaner than I remembered. Just cruel to Maria. Turn around, please. What? Turn. Hat off. It's the dress. You'll have to put on another one before you meet the children. But I don't have another one. And because of that, I still had a lot of trouble squaring the idea that anything between the two of them was remotely romantic. He thinks he's in love with you. But that's not true. Oh, they really spell it out. Yeah, buddy, you, you missed kind of a lot. Surely you've noticed the way he looks into your eyes. And you know, uh, you blushed in his arms when you were dancing just now. The one romance that still sparkled was between Liesl and the mailman. Though, watching again, I have to say the mailman was not as cute as I remembered. <gasps> it's the mailman! Oh, he kind of looks like a Nazi. Rolf, the mailman, comes back later in the first half to throw rocks on Liesl's window. That moment I remember. Again, so dreamy. But the one that followed was, was completely over my head as a kid. I didn't see. I mean, I didn't know you were... Heil Hitler! Oh. <laughs> Heil Hitler? Yeah. Heil Hitler. The hero of my version of The Sound of Music, who I'd hoped the second half would center around. He was the Nazi. Also, not the mailman. Yes, he was wearing a uniform and delivering messages, but... He was not employed by the Postal Service, as my child self had understood. He was some kind of military messenger. The first half is peppered with a few more hints like this, that things are going to take a turn, historically, in the second half of the movie. Uneasy talk about Austrian flags and something called an Anschluss, but all against the backdrop of a glamorous party. They're kind of easy to miss, if you're seven. The last thing I missed as a kid? The big title card that says intermission in yellow script that comes on screen after Maria closes the door. Maybe it was on the second VHS. Lena and I fast forward through the music at intermission and the second half starts. Oh my God, Lena. I can't this believe the, there's more. This is like a second movie for you. Two, three. Oh, this is really weird. You haven't seen any of this. Five, six, seven. Except as the second half starts, I suddenly feel like I have seen all of this. Watching the children play ball in their backyard felt strangely familiar. Six. Oh. 
I'd spent so much time already with the Von Trapps at their home that this new scene just felt like part of my memories. This confusing deja vu sticks with me all the way through the scenes of Maria back at the Abbey. It's not until the dad goes to meet Maria at the gazebo and declare his love for her that I am certain I have never seen this before. Do you know when I first started loving you? That night at the dinner table when you sat on that ridiculous pine cone. <laughs> what? <laughs> I knew the first time you blew that silly whistle. Oh my God. Oh my love. This is so gross. They basically just stared at each other three times, and now Maria was letting this horrible man marry her? I could not believe it. Just as I'm settling into the newness of the second half, gawking at Maria's wedding dress, everything in the movie shifts. The Nazis roll into town. It's incredibly abrupt. A cut from literal wedding bells to a bell tolling over a giant swastika flag on the town square. Lines of soldiers march across the plaza ominously. The colors seem to drain out of the movie. The children show up next in drab brown clothes against a stony backdrop, instead of their perky curtain outfits from the first half. The characters, meanwhile, are dealing with their own whiplash. Rolf surprises Liesel as she's getting into a car. Liesel! Liesel! <gasps> Rolf! I'm basically as excited to see Rolf as Liesel is right here. Because maybe this is when we get to the version of the second half I'd been wanting to see. Rolf and Liesel's courtship. Rolf, I'm so glad to see you. It's been Good such... afternoon. You will take this, please, and deliver it to your father as soon as he comes home. Ouch. Rolf. He's standing in front of a Nazi flag. Liesel is clearly disoriented, but still hopeful as she holds the telegram and coyly asks, Don't you want to come over tonight and deliver it yourself? I am now occupied with more important matters. And your father better be too if he knows what's good for him. But, Rolf. Oh, Liesel, you chose a bad one. This was the only relationship in the movie that interested me at all as a child. And it's sobering to see the whole realistic arc of it. As for the rest of the second half, it's predictable. You know their first escape isn't going to work out. It's obvious they'll win the singing contest. Great songs from the first half are just recycled in a weird way. The one moment that moves me, though, doesn't have anything to do with the characters I was attached to from the first half. It happens, surprisingly, when the dad starts singing a love song to his country on stage. He's doing it as an act of gentle defiance that makes the Nazi official's mustache twitch. And as the crowd joins in with him, I feel my throat catch a little. They remind me of people all around the world this summer, in Hong Kong, Beirut, Belarus, here in America, who are longing to hold on to something as their own countries change, rapidly, excruciatingly, around them. The darkest moment of the movie is perhaps at the very end, when the family has almost escaped, but then Rolf finds them in the abbey. He raises a whistle to turn them in, 
But the dad stops and reasons with him. You don't really belong to them. Stay where you are. Come away with us. Before it's too late. Ralph looks scared and boyish. He relinquishes his gun and leans over, relieved. But then the dad takes it one step too far. You'll never be one of them. Lieutenant! Lieutenant, they're here! They're here, Lieutenant! Ralph chooses to betray them. It's such a sinister and dissonant scene, held up against the cotton candy first half. The family still makes it out in time, but in spite of him, not with his help. And that's the actual end of the movie, as far as I know, today. So here's my conclusion, having seen it all. You don't need the second half. It's actually better without it. The second half just takes one of my kid self's favorite characters, Rolf, and makes him a villain. Then takes the worst character, the dad, and makes him a hero. There are barely any new songs. Maria disappears as a person. Liesl just looks uncomfortable the whole time, trying to act like a child for another hour. Everything memorable and iconic about the movie. My favorite things, the kids singing goodnight, Doe a deer. That all happens in the first half. But then I was at the beach this weekend with a friend, staring at the clouds and the kids throwing sand. And he said a thing that changed my feeling about the second half. He told me that, lately, he can last about three minutes feeling like everything is normal before he remembers it isn't. It made me understand the urge to include the dark end of the story in the movie about the singing family. Because once everything in the world has changed, you can't really will it to stay outside the frame. Diane Wu is one of the producers of our show. Her mom, uh, by the way, swears Diane saw the second half of the film as a child, even if Diane doesn't remember it. Act four, the kid namastes in the picture. So our show today is about people who watch a film and then have their own very particular take on it. Not long ago, I learned about somebody like that. Here she is in uh, Harry Potter glasses and a onesie with a Gryffindor crest on it, giving her version of the first Harry Potter film. We meet Harry, age 10, living in a house. Coming up to stand, take your feet wide, arms out, and above your head. House pose. Harry lives at number four, Privet Drive. This is Jamie Amore, the host or yoga instructor of a series of videos called Cosmic Kids Yoga. Viewership of these videos skyrocketed during quarantine from about 100,000 views a day to about a million. And a lot of her most popular videos for kids are her retelling the stories of children's movies, Moana or Trolls or Star Wars, and combining the stories with yoga. Uh, This spring during quarantine, I watched a six-year-old regularly and very happily do yoga for a half hour with these YouTube videos before starting his day of remote learning first grade. I would walk by and I would just get totally caught up in these videos. And I have to say, a lot of my pleasure and complete fascination with them was seeing the ingenuity that Jamie Amore uses to incorporate the poses into the storytelling. Like, for example, a warrior pose for Elsa, making snow and ice and frozen forward bends as Alice in Wonderland leans over to take a drink from the bottle that says, drink me on it. In The Wizard of Oz, when the tornado arrives, Dorothy is on her bed, in bed pose, of course. Look, 
Out the window, there's that mean lady from the village. She's riding a bicycle in the sky. Lying on your backs, crisscross your fingers bicycle and pose, of course. Parasanjavasana. Lift up your legs and pedal your legs like you're riding a bicycle. She's cackling like a witch. <laughs> but she's not riding a bicycle anymore. She's on a broomstick with a black hat. She really is a witch. Coming into broomstick pose, lying on your tummies, everyone. This is Glocus pose, Salabasana. And take your arms down by your side and lift your feet and chest up at the same time, going whoosh. The videos are actually structured like a real yoga class, always starting with a sitting pose and namaste, and always ending with shavasana, resting pose. Lying all the way down. And each of the videos plays like a little half-hour yoga appreciation of a movie. Though, they're all kids' films. So, uh, you know, Jamie Amore's kid-friendly tone matches him perfectly. But putting together today's program, we wondered what it would be like if she took on a film that's made for grown-ups, and beloved by grown-ups, not by kids, uh, so we reached out to her and her husband, Martin, who makes these videos with her, and they were into it. <laughs> and we considered a bunch of different films to turn into yoga, uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs and Pulp Fiction and Parasite, before we settled on this film. Jamie Amore prepared this for us. Thelma and Louise are best friends. Let's do a hug pose, wrapping our arms around our shoulders like we're hugging our best friend. They set out for a weekend away in the mountains to take a break. On the way, they stop for a cold, refreshing drink at a bar. Thelma dances with a man called Harlan, coming into our dancer pose. Standing on one leg, we catch our foot with our hand behind us and lift it as we reach forwards with our other arm. Harlan wants to do more than dancing with Thelma, but she doesn't want to. Louise finds them and is so angry at Harlan that she shoots him in the chest, coming into our shooter-warrior pose. Standing one foot forward, one foot back, we bend our front knee and open our arms wide. Pew! Thelma and Louise whiz off in the car, coming into car pose, sitting with legs out long, arms forward to hold the steering wheel. Oh dear, what have they done? On the road, the women meet a handsome, friendly young man called J.D. Thelma rather likes J.D. and invites him for a sleepover. In the morning, J.D. wakes up, coming up to stand, reaching our arms up to the sky. We wave and say, hello, son. And while Thelma and Louise go to breakfast, J.D. steals all of Louise's money. Oh, dear. Thelma feels really bad. To fix the situation, Thelma decides to become a robber and steal all the money from a nearby market. Naughty Thelma. Now the police are after them. Thelma and Louise arrive at the Grand Canyon, coming to stand in our mountain pose, standing with our feet hip distance, arms by our side. We become a still and strong as the mountains. They take a breath together, <sighs> soaking up the incredible view and the peace of this place. All of a sudden, a helicopter thunders into view, jumping our feet wide and clapping our hands up over our heads. 
The dust swirls and the sirens scream. Arms wide, we spin side to side to side. They're trapped. Thelma looks at her best friend. Listen, let's not get caught. Let's keep going. Louise checks if Thelma is sure. She nods. Louise cups Thelma's face and kisses her, cupping our faces to feel our cheeks. Louise steps on the gas, stepping one foot forward. As the car screeches forward, Thelma and Louise clasp hands. The car flies off the cliff, coming into our flying pose, lifting up our back leg, balancing on our standing leg and taking our arms out wide. We're flying! After all that action, we're ready to relax now. So we lie down and let our bodies feel heavy. We close our eyes and take a big, deep breath. <sighs> Jamie Moore, her yoga videos for kids that mix movies and yoga, but also there are ones which mix video games and yoga and all kinds of other things, are at CosmicKids.com or find their free YouTube channel, youtube.com, Cosmic Kids Yoga. Betty Davis is probably lying, and Greta Garbo is probably crying, while Robert Taylor is locked in her dying embrace. Chico and Bracho and Chaplin and Lloyd are all super. Sweet Mickey Mouse, Shirley Temple, and dear Jackie Our program was produced today by Lena Masitsis and Nora Gill. The people who put together today's show include Susan Burton, Ben Calhoun, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Damian Gray, Michelle Harris, Hannah Joffrey Walt, Seth Lynch, Stone Nelson, Nadia Raymond, Alyssa Ship, Christopher Sutala, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editors, Sarah Abdurrahman. Our executive editors, David Kestenbaum. Special thanks today to Jason Smart, David Selassie, Hong Yen, Xiong Chen Wu, Karina Longworth, B.A. Parker, Adrian Shirk, Paul Shearer, Luke, Sophie, and Olivia, and Cecil Ranieri. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Our website, where you can listen to any of our over 700 shows for absolutely free, thisamericanlife.org. Thanks as always to our program's co-founder, Mr. Trey Mautier, who says he has one rule about drinking during the pandemic. Before 5 p.m. or prior to 5 p.m. or not later than 4.59 p.m. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Thank you.